Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's message is entitled, No More Mr. Nice Guy. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. It seems like the idiom, No More Mr. Nice Guy, has been part of the English language forever. However, after some research, I discovered that it first showed up in the American vocabulary we use somewhere around the middle of the 20th century. But it became mainstream when shock rocker Alice Cooper released a single with the same name to Top 40 Radio in 1972. Not long after that, President Richard Nixon used the phrase in an interview about his strategy with the Vietnam War. No more Mr. Nice Guy means no more appeasing, tolerating, or leniency. We use the phrase when it's time for us to get tougher than we were before, when we need to oppose injustice or play a game harder. Since its inception... The Lord has called His church to something greater than being nice. He has called us to a tougher, harder, less tolerant life than what is commonly expected of many Christians or by many Christians today. The Lord has called His church to be something more impactful, longer lasting, and extraordinary than being just nice. He has called His church to be godly. We're going to be taking a break from the uh, series in the Psalms that I've been doing for the last uh, few weeks, and we will return to it after the holidays. Next week I'll be kicking off a series called Carols for the King, in which I'll be explaining the backstory and biblical foundation for some of our favorite Christmas carols. I hope that you can join us for each week of that series because I think it will transform your Christmas season. Today's message is titled, No More Mr. Nice Guy. It's a combination Christmas message that I'm doing today and also a scratch where it itches message. And I say that because I've had an itch or a concern for some time that I I think the Lord is telling me it's time to scratch. I originally shared just the outline or some basic concepts of this message about a year ago at a Bacon and Bibles breakfast with our men last year. Um, so those men that were heard that message, or excuse me, heard that little short devotional, um, please don't think, well, I've heard this, so I, I can just kind of check out and, you know, Um, get on my phone and and check the football scores, because I put more meat on the bone this morning for you. There's going to be a lot more content, so uh, I want to encourage you to take notes diligently, as you often do. With that, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 with me, as we look at part of the Christmas story, or sort of the tail end of the Christmas story in Luke 2. And if you forgot your Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers can loan one to you. We want you to have a copy in front of you so you can follow along and understand what I'm talking about. 
The big idea that I hope you're able to remember at the end of our time together today is this. The greatest thing you can say about a believer is that they are godly. The greatest thing you can say about a believer is that they are godly. This is because in saying so, you are comparing that person to the greatest person that ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no higher compliment you can pay someone and no higher standard to which you can compare them. On the other hand, one of the worst things you can say about a believer is that they are nice. I am referring to such compliments that are common in American churches as, have you met him? Oh, he's such a nice guy. Or, or you need to call her. She's so nice. Or everybody likes her because she's so kind. Now, you might already be wondering, why is commending such niceness a problem, Pastor Kerry? Well, I thought you'd never ask. So I'm going to give you three reasons here on the front page of your outline to start off with. Reason number one, why commending niceness is a problem. And that's this, because nowhere in the Bible are people God was pleased with described as being nice. Nowhere. And trust me, I've looked extensively. I can't find it anywhere. Listen to what I found, though, when I surveyed the Scriptures to find out how the Holy Spirit inspired the biblical writers to compliment exemplary believers. In the Old Testament, Abraham was called a friend of God. Enoch walked with God, and it pleased God. David was called a man after God's own heart. Job was described as being blameless, upright, feared God, and shunned evil. Then there was Miriam and Ruth and Esther, were among some of the women that were commended in the Old Testament for their faith in the Lord. In the New Testament, there's Stephen in Acts chapter 6 who was described as a man that was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Then there's Barnabas in Acts chapter 11 who was called a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And then there's Mary, Jesus' mother and Mary and Martha, and Phoebe, and Priscilla, and Lois, and Eunice, all women in the New Testament that were commended for their walk with the Lord or their investment in gospel ministry. Now please don't miss what I'm about to say to you here. Nearly every person that has a compliment by their name in the scriptures, was commended in some way about their relationship with the Lord. This speaks loudly to what the Lord truly values in a person. 
It also reveals that in eternity, Jesus Christ will will be giving out eternal rewards to godly believers, but um, he's not going to be giving out trophies for most liked persons or most popular in their class. In fact, there are a lot of nice people that are fun and likable that will spend eternity in hell despite their popularity because they've not trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. In fact, I think also getting us to value niceness over godliness is a trick that the adversary uses against us because it plays on our fear of rejection. It gets us to crave acceptance from people we can never please in exchange for the acceptance from God that we can never lose. So, the first reason why commending niceness is a problem, well, because nowhere in the Bible are the people that God was pleased with described as being nice. They were described as being faithful. Here's the second reason commending niceness is a problem. Jesus Jesus wasn't always nice. Jesus wasn't always nice. Listen to some of the things that Jesus said during his earthly ministry that you won't hear quoted very often. For example, while teaching a large group of followers, he says in Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do what I say? To the Pharisees, he said in Matthew chapter 23, you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. And then just a few sentences later, he told them, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Oh my goodness. If Jesus had said something like that today, somebody with their iPhone would have videoed that and posted it on YouTube, it would have went viral. Listen to this guy. Who does he think he is? To the man who had the ailing father who wanted to be by his bedside when he died, but also was interested in following Jesus, Jesus said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, Jesus was saying, stop procrastinating, follow me now, and trust me with your father. What? How insensitive to the 12 disciples. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Matthew 10, verses 34 to 35. In Luke 14, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus saying we got to hate? What? To the rich young ruler who was interested in following him, Jesus said, Go sell all that you have, then come follow me. As you can see, Jesus wasn't someone to mince words or pull punches. If he'd been on earth doing his ministry nowadays, I've often wondered in this hypersensitive world that we live in, if Jesus would be called out on social media 
and trolled and maybe a hashtag created about how offensive he was. And maybe he'd become the topic of talk shows because of his insensitivity and intolerance. One network might focus on his charitable work, while another network might focus on his controversial teachings. And I'm not saying whether it would be Fox or CNN. You can decide. Jesus spoke hard truths in love to stubborn hearts because it was truth that needed to be heard. My point, my point is this, is that elevating the kindness of Jesus above his godliness dissects him like a frog in high school biology class into one half that the world can, can accept and another half that the world wants to reject. But you can't do that. We can't do that. I would summarize what God's Word has to say about niceness and godliness by using the table that's on your sermon note handout. I've filled out the left-hand side for you. I want to encourage you to fill out the right-hand side using the screen behind me. From what I can see in the Scriptures, to, to be nice is to please people, but to be godly is to please the Lord. Nice Christians live their lives consciously or unconsciously trying to gain approval or to avoid the disapproval of people. Ironically, I found that pleasing the Lord is easier than pleasing people because what people want is always changing while what the Lord wants never changes. Paul writes in Galatians 1.10, we cannot please both God and people. The two are polar opposites. They want different things. Next, to be nice is to stand for nothing, whereas to be godly is to stand for truth. People that stand for nothing usually have two things in common. First, they, they don't know God's word or don't love it, and they fear people more than the Lord. On the other hand, those that stand for truth know and love God's word, and they fear the Lord more than people. Next, people that uh, are nice play it safe. They, they, they like a comfortable life. But those that are godly take faith risks. Nice people often idolize comfort, so they, they live a life pursuing safety at the expense of obedience to the Lord. On the other hand, godly people have laid down their life by faith so the Lord can use them however He wants, even if it means being uncomfortable. It's, they live their lives with the mindset of, well, the Lord's calling me to quit my job and go into full-time ministry. Guess that's what I'm going to do. Or the Lord's calling me to move here or to do this instead. Or I'm going to go do it. To be nice is to be accepted by everyone, whereas to be godly is to be rejected by some, if not all. Jesus was rejected by quite a few people. One of the most overlooked truths in the Scriptures is that many of the people of God that were used most by Him were also some of the loneliest people on earth. I think this is why pastor and author Eugene Peterson once insightfully wrote this. 
Nearness to God sometimes means alienation from men. We also forget that most of the early believers and apostles suffered for their faith in Christ, even to the point of death. Being a Christ follower didn't make them more pleasant to be around. Instead, it made them a target for those that hated God. And finally, uh, to be nice is to tolerate sin because you don't want to upset anybody versus being godly is to lovingly confront sin. Oftentimes, nice Christians preserve their approval from people and the relationships they have with other believers by tolerating sin. At the root of this is the fact that they love the relationships they have more than the people they have them with. Because if they really loved the people, they would see what the sin was doing to them, and they would, if they loved the Lord, they would know how God felt about that sin, and they would lovingly try and do something about it and speak up. So being nice and being godly are diametrically opposed to one another in the Scriptures. Here's a third reason commending niceness is a problem, and that's all Christ followers are called to be Christ-like. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Ephesians 5, 1 are just a few passages that speak to the fact that we're to, Jesus set an example for us as believers, and then we are to follow his example. We should imitate him, and that means even suffer for him. However, what I've noticed is that when godliness is no longer the goal in the Christian life, worldliness becomes the standard. I think this is why James, who was passionate about this issue as well, James in James chapter 4, verse 4, he wrote, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James wasn't saying we need to uh, be at odds intentionally with the world, but he was saying we need to, uh, to use the phrase that you probably have heard, be in the world but not of the world. There needs to be some distinction between us and them. Now, this is probably the longest introduction I've done in all my years of preaching the Scriptures. <laughs> times when I've had the opportunity to speak into the lives of, or coach younger preachers, I often will tell them, get to the passage, the text, quickly. Don't go longer than five minutes on the introduction. Well, I realized yesterday when I was writing this message, I broke my own rule. So, um, hopefully, this won't happen again. We'll see next week. But... Um, Having said that, now that I have your attention, hopefully, hopefully I have you sitting on the edge of your seat going, man, what is this? I've never heard this. Well, let's use the remainder of our time together to look at a man in the Christmas story that was commended by God because he was godly. His name is Simeon. In Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 35, it's the middle third of Luke 2, Mary and Joseph are taking baby Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate him and have him circumcised. This is basically an early form of baby dedication, and it was based in the Old Testament law, probably somewhere between 30 to 45 days after Jesus had been born. Look, if you would, in your Bibles at Luke chapter 2, verse 22, 
And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now Simeon, let me stop there. Simeon demonstrates four qualities that godly believers have. Believers that are commended by the Lord. Here's the first one, number one on your outline. Godly believers are Christ-like and committed. They're Christ-like and committed. The first thing we're told in verse 25 about Simeon is that he was righteous. It doesn't mean that he was perfect because perfection cannot be achieved by any man other than Jesus. However, it does mean that Simeon was right with God through his faith in the coming Messiah. The Greek text literally says that he kept God's commands. So, in other words, Simeon was, was someone who read the Scriptures and then went and did what they say. He didn't consider them optional. He didn't consider them negotiable. He just did it. The Lord says this, I will do that. Next, we're told in verse 25 that Simeon was devout. It's a turn of the word used in the ESV translation. The original language is an interesting word that's used for devout. Uh, it, it, it literally means to, to take hold of his faith in the Lord, but with careful reverence, without letting go. And this is interesting, too, because when you look at Simeon's righteousness and his devoutness, you have to understand that in the time that Simeon was living was one of the darkest times in Israel's history. This was, this was at the end of a 400-year period of silence in which God did not move in any demonstrable way, and there were no prophets. There was no time previously as long as that, where God didn't speak or move. There was silence. It was a dark time in Israel, which means there were fewer people walking with the Lord, probably in part because they didn't see God moving or hear God speaking. And so Simeon is exceptionally exemplary in that he remained faithful in a dark time where he was probably one of the few. So in other words, Simeon wasn't dependent upon other people helping him walk with the Lord. I'm not saying that you should live to a Lone Ranger Christian life, but instead what I'm trying to say is that Simeon is exceptional in that he didn't toss his faith aside when everybody else did. He didn't let what everybody else was doing dictate what he does. He remained faithful to the Lord. So, application. 
Application answers the question when we study the scriptures inductively, what must I do now that I've heard this? Well, I think one application that comes to mind is to evaluate your commitment to the Lord and His church. The Christmas season is a is a good time to take a spiritual inventory, not only because of the focus on the gospel this time of year, but also because there's a new year coming. If your family and friends were to be interviewed about your faith in Christ that you profess to have, would they say, ah, yes, he is righteous and devout, or she is deeply committed to her faith in Christ. You see, the greatest thing you can say about a believer is that they are godly. But one of the worst things you can say about a believer is they are nice. Here's the second quality that Simeon models for us, and that is that godly believers are yielded to the Holy Spirit. They're yielded to the Spirit, excuse me. There's an interesting turn of phrase that's rare in the scriptures here in verse 25, the second half of the verse. It says, the Holy Spirit was upon him. It means that Simeon walked so closely with God that he was led by the Spirit of God, taught by the Word of God, and committed to the will of God. No matter what the cost. To have the Holy Spirit upon you is to be so yielded to God's will for your life, that you do things you wouldn't normally do. Or couldn't do in your own strength. <laughs> Many of you don't know this. I know you probably think I've always been preaching and <laughs> like this, but um, what I know, and you probably think I'm comfortable up here doing this, but actually I'm nervous every time I get to preach. <laughs> Still, after 20 years of doing it. And what I know and what the Lord knows is that I'm still the kid that nearly vomited in rhetoric class in high school because I had to get up and do like a book report. And, uh, and then when I was in college in communications classes in my undergraduate studies, I... I still got so nervous that I'd be stripping with sweat and just thought, there's no way I'm going to get up and speak in front of people. And so I can testify to you that it's only by God's grace and His Spirit enabling me to do this that I can do it because I'm really an insecure speaker. I really get nervous all the time. And I hate watching myself do it or listening to myself on podcast or Oh, one of the most excruciating things I ever had to do was in seminary, when I was at Dallas Seminary in preaching class, they, they had us give a short 15-minute sermon, um, the professor did, and we, we were videotaped, and the professor um, had a microphone where he would share what he was thinking instantaneously while I was preaching in the classroom to my fellow students. Okay, stop rubbing your nose. That's the 15th time you've rubbed your nose. Don't do that anymore. Okay, you lost me on that point. What? All right, that joke, it wasn't funny. That was offensive. Women in the audience would probably not like that joke. And so then what we had to do is sit down and watch the tape back with the professor. I mean, it's just excruciating. It was like, it was like American Idol at Dallas Seminary. It was, I called it Preaching Idol, you know? So... 
Um, all that to say, I still think about all those things, and when I listen to my sermons back to see if there's things I could have done differently, I still, I'm my biggest critic. <laughs> oh, why did I say that? That was, oh, I shouldn't have, I should have done that instead. And, and so I, I just, I tell you, I, I can relate to Simeon and go, here's a man who's doing something abnormal and supernatural. He's going to give a prophecy about the Messiah and he's doing it because the Spirit's enabled him to do it. I'm like, I can relate. Because the only reason why I could get up and preach to you every week is because the Spirit helps me. And I desperately need his help. Now notice also, here's another thing. Getting back to how this relates to all of you. And that is that believers that are filled with the Holy Spirit... I mentioned they do things they wouldn't normally do. Well, here's some examples. They, they love those that they would normally hate. Believers that are filled with the Holy Spirit, um, they're bold when they would typically be timid. They, they serve when they would normally be selfish. They forgive when they would rather not forgive. This phrase that the Holy Spirit was upon him, I think also is a reminder that a godly, Christ-centered life cannot be lived in our own strength. We can't do it. It can only be achieved with an abiding dependence on the Lord. So here's an application. What do we do with this? The fact that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Well, develop your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. If our church is to be used by the Lord to do high-impact ministry, then we need to be so under His control that His power can flow through us. How do you get this? Well, it only comes from a life saturated in prayer and marinated in the Word. I've often said that listening to the Holy Spirit is... Much like scanning, hitting scan on your radio in your car, you know, where it, it goes up the dial and gives you a five-second sample of each channel, and you're looking for a particular genre of music or your favorite music. There are three frequencies broadcasting that you need to be aware of. First of all, the flesh, your flesh, your sin nature, the adversary, and the Holy Spirit. And as you're scanning the frequencies, you need to be aware that your flesh will always tell you what you want to hear. And the adversary will always tell you what the world wants you to hear. But the Spirit will always tell you what you need to hear. And what the Spirit says will always align with the Word of God. So godly believers are yielded to the Spirit, and they develop their sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Here's a third quality that Simeon models for us, and that is that godly believers long to see the Lord. They long to see the Lord. Notice that Simeon wasn't longing for the next stage in his career, a bigger house, a newer car, a new boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse, or the latest gadget or smartphone, or a carefree retirement season before he dies in a sunny, gated, locked community. Instead, as we see in verse 29, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
This is, this is Simeon saying how much he longed to be with the Lord. He, was, he saw being with the Lord like a Star Wars fan anticipated the next sequel. Or a child waiting for Christmas morning to come so they could open presents. Or an American soldier serving in Afghanistan that dreams of being reunited with his family. Simeon couldn't wait to go home to be with the Lord. Commentator J.C. Ryle explains in his commentary in the Gospels, he, he shares this insight about verses uh, 25 and 26. He says this, quote, Simeon shows us how completely a believer can be delivered from the fear of death. He speaks like one for whom the grave has lost its terrors and the world its charms. He desires to be released from the miseries of this pilgrim state and to be allowed to go home. He speaks as one who knows where he is going when he departs this life and cares not how soon he goes. You see, loved ones, for Simeon, death was a door to something exponentially greater than anything this world has to offer. And that is unhindered fellowship with the Lord. Now I was wondering, why is it there aren't more professing believers that feel the way Simeon does about being with the Lord and, this, and, being, and leaving this world behind. Why is it? Well, A.W. Tozer answers this question in his book, Man, the Dwelling Place of God. I want to share this quote with you. Tozer wrote this in the mid-20th century during his ministry in Chicago. Quote, the weakness of so many modern Christians is that they feel too much at home in the world. In their effort to achieve restful adjustment to unregenerate society, they have lost their pilgrim character and become an essential part of the very moral order against which they are sent to protest. The world recognizes them and accepts them for what they are. And this is the saddest thing that can be said about them. So what do we do? How do we apply this? Well, I think it's a call to evaluate our priorities. It's a call to evaluate our priorities. When we look at how Simeon saw death and how he saw this world. Because godly believers have the same model that Paul shared with the Philippians. Philippians 1, 21 and 23. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. My desire is to part and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But Paul said, I stay here with you, Philippians, because you need me still. But I'm torn in my heart, Paul says. Can you say that? You see, there's a difference between loving the Lord versus loving what the Lord can do for you. And what I've noticed is that some Christians, or professing Christians... 
They seem to love the salvation the Lord offers, but they don't, it doesn't end up creating a love for the Lord themselves. Therefore, I think if you don't long to be with the Lord, it means you love something else besides the Lord. There's something else that has your heart besides Him. And I want to urge you today to get that right with Him. Because the greatest thing you can say about a believer is that they are godly. But one of the worst things you can say about a believer is that they're nice. Look at the remainder of the passage in verse 27. It says, He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here's the fourth quality that Simeon reveals for us. Godly believers bless the Lord. Godly believers bless the Lord. Don't miss these three important words that are in verse 28. It's easy to just blow right on by them. At 65 miles per hour as you're reading this passage. I have them underlined in my Bible. You might want to underline them in yours or highlight it. He blessed God. Have you ever thought about how ironic that sounds? He blessed God in verse 28. Normally, the scriptures describe God being a blessing to man, or God, or excuse me, man asking for God's blessing, right? Well, here, Simeon is blessing God. How on earth does he do that? How can a man bless God? Well, it simply means to give thanks, praise, or to declare his good works. For example, in the Psalms, it's a turn of phrase that's used often in Psalm 34, which we studied last week. David writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 100, verse 4. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Psalm 103, verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. Psalm 96, verses 2 and 3, sing to the Lord and bless His name. 
So what's the application? I think we need to make corporate worship a habit. Have you ever thought about, and this is difficult, this is a difficult question I'm going to ask because consumerism has infiltrated many churches. The first thought that comes to the mind of many professing Christians is what can this church or what can God do for me? But what the scriptures teach is exactly the opposite. What can you do for the Lord and do for his church? And so the question I want to ask is, have you ever thought about how being here on Sunday, on time and engaged, blesses the Lord? i got to be honest, I hadn't thought about it until I studied this passage. What this tells me when I look at the Psalms and I look at verse 28 is that if you skip church two to three times a month, you don't get to bless the Lord. And if you show up late, you're cutting short your time to bless the Lord. It's interesting, I've noticed that... <laughs> When God blesses man, man's usually made better, but when man blesses God, God becomes greater to man. So if the Lord's seeming kind of small to you, perhaps it's because you need to give him some more blessings. Or to use David's turn of phrase from Psalm 34, I will magnify the Lord. When we worship the Lord, he gets bigger to us. That's one of many reasons why corporate worship is very important for your soul. And the Lord loves it. He enjoys thoroughly His people singing praises to Him. So what verse 28 in the Psalms tell me that I just read off is that on those Sundays when you just don't feel like worshiping the Lord, on those Sundays when you're disappointed with Him or you're not feeling well, do it anyway to bless Him. To bless Him. So godly believers, bless the Lord. Some of you are on your way, well on your way, towards godliness. You are walking with the Lord. You are growing in your faith and applying the scriptures with the Lord's help. And it's a great encouragement to me as your pastor to see you grow. If you want to be a man or woman that leaves a mark on this world, then I want to urge you to strive to be godly through a personal, intimate, deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. Every day. Because the greatest thing that you can say about a believer is that they are godly. And one of the worst things that you can say about a believer is that they are nice. So no more Mr. Nice Guy or Gal Let's strive as a church to value what God values and to commend what He commends. 
And let's strive to be godly so that when we talk about each other, we can say, man, that's a godly man right there. That's a godly woman. Because that pleases the Lord. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, you know that one of my greatest fears today with this topic and this message was being misunderstood. And Lord, you know I stayed up late agonizing over the manuscript, trying to get my wording right and trying to come up with just the best illustrations I could. And I still feel like I fell short. And I I still feel like there are things that I could have said better or should have said or not said. And so please, Father, just in my own fallenness and my own weakness, I just ask, please, would you have dominion and over this message and just correct anything that I said that maybe wasn't as clear as it needed to be or even prevent the evil one, Lord. The evil one wants to take something that I said and maybe didn't clarify, and he wants to twist it. And he wants to cause someone here to misunderstand it. Please, Lord, just would you supersede that. Father, I want to pray for those that are here today that hear this, and when they hear strive for godliness, they the first thing that comes to their mind is they just want to pull up the bootstraps and they're going to they're going to just work harder and in essence fall into legalism please Lord don't let them do that Lord would you help them to understand that godliness is a byproduct of a growing intimate relationship with your son and that and that godliness can be achieved by by them just spending time with Jesus on a daily basis and letting your spirit work within them. Father, I want to pray for those that maybe don't know Christ yet and they, they hear this and they just think they need to try and be a better person. Lord, would you please just help them to understand they can't be better apart from Christ. Would you help them to see just how bad their sin is, but how good your grace is and and how complete a salvation you offer through Christ. So that they will trust Christ for their salvation and be made new and changed and transformed into a little Christ as the word literally means. Father, for those that think they're doing good, they're already pretty godly, would you humble them? Would you remind them that Jesus is the standard and unless we're like Jesus, we've not arrived. Thank you, Lord, that you are stronger, that sin is broken, that you have saved those that have repented and trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you are the great healer. 
Please, Lord, work within us and work through our church to do great things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.